Grace, mercy, and peace be yours from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. We begin our meditation on the title of Christ and what that means for Jesus with respect to his kingship by hearing an excerpt from one of the most masterful pieces of cinema of all time, Monty Python's Quest for the Holy Grail. Now, I'm always hesitant to make movie references because that's a surefire way to alienate half the room. But as I put this together, this kept occurring to me. It just kept coming back to me. If you've never seen the film, don't worry about it. But the main character is King Arthur, who in the first half of the film is traveling around the countryside to recruit knights to join him at the round table in Camelot. Now, the trouble is that most of the people out in the countryside are not aware of his kingship. They've never heard of him. How would they have? Now, in one scene, he trots into a village on his imaginary steed, and he gets into an argument with two two peasants who refuse to acknowledge him as king. One says, you're not my king. I didn't vote for you. He says, you don't vote for king. And this peasant says, well, how did you become king then? And then Arthur waxes poetic about his coronation, right? He says, the lady of the lake, her arm clad in the purest shimmering Samite, held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I am your king. And then Dennis one of the peasants responded, Listen, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. (laughs) True enough, how many non-believers and how many skeptics of the Christian faith would suggest the same thing about our assertion that Jesus is the Christ? When we confess that Jesus is the Christ, we are saying that he is the anointed one of God who fulfills and completes three divinely established offices in the Old Testament, prophet, priest, and king. And how many there are today who do not acknowledge the kingship, the lordship of the risen Jesus Christ. So how do we tackle this question? How did he become king? Now the psalm that I read uh, read from a, a minute ago is Psalm 2. Psalm 2 was used as a coronation psalm. It's one that was used liturgically when one of Israel's kings stepped into office. He was anointed by oil, uh, anointed with oil by the priest, and this psalm, Psalm 2, would have been prayed or sung during the ceremony. And it describes how God regards those who oppose his divine rule in the world through his anointed king. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. God laughs at his enemies who would oppose his rule through his messianic king. And what makes me laugh is that this psalm, Psalm 2, is the one that's appointed for Christmas Day. While we're celebrating the lowly infant King Jesus who has come into the world in human flesh, the God who reigns through him is laughing at his enemies. The psalm goes on in verse 5. 
Then God will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, so here's how God is going to strike fear in the heart of his enemies. Verse 6, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now there's multiple layers to this verse. The king, Zion, the holy hill. But for our purposes this evening, I'm going to explain to you how Jesus became king, that is, how he is the content, he is the subject of Psalm 2, and then what that means for your salvation. All right? So first, how did Jesus become king? Well, we begin with his rightful claim as Lord over all creation. John 1 makes clear that he is the eternal word of God who is God, through whom God created all things visible and invisible. So there is not one square inch of this universe over which Jesus, by, being, by virtue of being the Son of God, does not rightfully call his own. All this goes without saying. But the problem is that the universe has corrupted completely, has been corrupted completely by the power of human sin. And it has been subjected to the devil who has been LARPing as king ever since. Everybody know what a, what a LARPer is? One of those people that goes out and you know, dresses up like a, like a knight and uses like foam swords and stuff like that? That's what the devil's been doing. In the story of Robin Hood, another favorite of mine, King Richard goes off to war, right? And Prince John, that phony king of England, comes in as a usurper and throws the kingdom into chaos and oppression until the rightful king comes back and makes everything right. That's what's, that's what's going on here. This is the point of Jesus' incarnation. The true king coming in to the creation to claim what is rightfully his. So when Jesus enters into the creation, he does so to establish his reign and his rule over it. It's why Psalm 2 is a great psalm for Christmas Day. That baby in that manger means that God is laughing at his enemies because there's no stopping this plan that God is ushering into his creation. When the Word became flesh, when the Son of God entered into the manger, He did so to become king in a new way. In a way that was going to be the end for the enemies of God. But, as we've learned these last couple of weeks, you could not simply take this title of king to yourself. You had to meet certain conditions, certain requirements. In the case of Israel, you had to descend from the kingly line, the Davidic line to be exact. Now Jesus checks the box, right? That's what we're going to hear all about in, in this coming uh, weekend when we celebrate Christmas. We're going to hear about Jesus who is the true son of David, his earthly father, Joseph, having been descended from the house of David. Matthew's gospel, what does it begin with? A genealogy. Not to bore you to death, but to take great pains to show you that Jesus is David's legitimate heir. That's what Matthew's getting after. Now, where might we find where Jesus begins to take up 
his kingly tasks. Consider his baptism in the River Jordan. This is not some farcical aquatic ceremony, as Dennis would say. This was a public event, something out in the open, something that has hardcore eyewitness testimony to it. Now, here's what's crazy about this, and I wish I could do some more reading on this. But according to Roman mythology, the elevation of Caesar as king of the empire was said to be accompanied by the appearance of an eagle. All right, so this, the eagle was supposed to appear whenever this new Caesar was coronated. And the eagle, of course, we know represents power, authority, dominion. What is it that appears at Jesus' baptism? The Holy Spirit, not in the form of an eagle, although he could have taken that form, I suppose, but in the form of a dove. This is symbolizing a new reign, not one of war, but one of peace. You better believe that King Jesus was going to war against the enemy, but peace to those who were captive to the enemy. At the beginning of Holy Week, he rode into Jerusalem to establish his kingly rule. We sang that hymn, All Glory, Loud, and Honor, right? That's, that's one that's usually reserved for Palm Sunday, right? He was hailed as king by the masses as they cried out, Hosanna to the Son of David. And he rode in not on a war horse, but on a donkey, a beast of burden, that he, this reigning king, might carry the burdens of his people all the way to Calvary, the holy hill on which God would set his king. The Romans who mocked him and who spit upon him fitted him with a crown of thorns, but it would only establish him as the one who would carry the curse of creation all the way to Golgotha, that the curse of sin and death might meet its end. And when he was nailed to the cross, he was mocked for not being able to save himself, was he not? And although he could, he would not come down because it was his throne from which he was establishing his kingly reign. And when he arose on the third day, he proved beyond all doubt that he is the rightful ruler over everything, as Colossians 1 says, that he is the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might be preeminent. Forty days after he was raised, he ascended bodily as both God and man to the heavenly throne, and Psalm 2 found its fulfillment. In Christ, God has set his king upon Zion, his holy hill, and Zion is not just a reference to a place in Jerusalem. It's not just a reference to the Temple Mount, but it extends now to the far reaches of the earth. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed through the word and the sacraments, there God has set his king upon his holy hill. There is Zion, where Jesus, the reigning king, establishes his reign, his rule of grace. In the world, and over the creation, Jesus reigns as sovereign Lord through his law. But in the church, through the means of grace, he reigns through his gospel as he grants us the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. 
in the words of King Arthur, that is why he is your king. And I do emphasize your king. Jesus is king and he is Lord no matter what. But like Arthur in the movie, if he is not your king, then it makes no difference for you in your day-to-day living. And you're left wallowing around in the filth and the muck of your own sins like those peasants were in the film. Here's what Luther says in the large catechism. He says, Jesus has delivered us poor lost people from hell's jaws. He has won us. He has made us free. He has brought us again into the Father's favor and grace. He has taken us as his own property under his shelter and protection so that he may govern us by his righteousness, wisdom, power, life, and blessedness. How can I so confidently assert that Jesus is not just king over all creation, but is uniquely your king? Because he has redeemed you and he has made you his own. Not with gold or silver, but with his holy precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death. That's how he's become your king. How do you know that Jesus has become your king? Because the gospel, which announces the reign and rule of Christ, the gospel in all of its benefits has come to you. Where the church gathers in the name of Jesus, there God has set his king upon his holy hill. Where the church gathers, there is Zion with her king as he graciously reigns through the power of the Holy Spirit, not as an eagle, but as a dove. In his baptism, Jesus was pronounced king. In your baptism, you became his subject. The same Holy Spirit was given to you as you were called out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his marvelous light. You've been rescued from the dominion of the devil. You've been granted the forgiveness of all of your sins. You've been given royal status in the house of your Lord. And I, as your pastor, who speak Jesus' words of absolution and continually preach the gospel to you to continually declare Jesus' reign and rule in your life, that's how you know. You feast regularly at the king's table where he feeds you not with the stuff that the pigs eat, even though that's what you deserve, but rather he feeds you the royal feast of salvation, his own body and his own blood. That Bible of yours that you open and that you regularly read bears witness to you that this is no fable. This is not strange women lying in ponds distributing swords. This is a strange story that I'm talking about, no doubt. But it's about a true flesh and blood king who has come to shed his own blood to claim what is his. You. God sits in the heavens and he laughs at his enemies. He laughs at your enemies. Satan, sin, death. They're running out of time. He has established his king upon his holy hill. Blessed are you who take refuge in him.
In the name of Jesus, amen.